Happening now, we'd like to welcome our viewers from across North America and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room for February the 5th, 2000 and no, sorry, February the 6th, 2019, episode 124. And I am Wes Fryer coming to you from Oklahoma City, where it's been an exciting day. Uh, and not just technology news, but technology news is what we're here to talk about. And I am the director of technology at the Cassidy School here in Northwest Oklahoma City, a little community known as The Village. And we are, I guess, enjoying some pretty mild weather. I talked to my parents. They're, I think, getting an ice storm now in Kansas. We've been below the freeze line. It was like 37-ish, whatever. We were, we've been foggy. And anyway, isn't, isn't the world a wild place? But joining us from a, a bit of a colder place, but not a polar vortex place, is Dr. Jason Neifer from beautiful Missoula, Montana. And Jason, how is life in the Missoula uh, online learning fast lane these days? Uh, well, pretty good. Uh, it is 12 degrees tonight in Missoula, Montana, although I got to say it is a balmy 12 degrees in comparison to other locations in Montana. Currently, Montana, very large state, uh, uh, takes about 12 hours to drive from end to end if you uh, uh, take roads that uh, are passable by standard cars. It's negative 11 in Great Falls, Montana tonight, negative 11 in Lewis County, Montana, negative 10 in Glendive, Montana negative 10 in Haver, Montana, and negative 15 uh, near the Canadian border in far northeastern Montana. So we are getting a little taste of the vortex here in Big Sky Country. Um, I am joining from Missoula, Montana, where I am the curriculum director and assistant director of the Montana Digital Academy, the state virtual school located on the University of Montana campus, fabulous Missoula, where we have been experiencing uh, a pretty big snow dump the last uh, six or seven days. Uh, and which is good. To be honest, I like having four seasons. Montana is famous for having four very distinct seasons. And if, you know, if it's going to be wintertime, it might as well snow. So we've got uh, at least, I'd say, foot or snow, um, a foot or so of snow on the ground. My wife is actually in Big Sky, Montana tonight, which is uh, known for its ski hills. And she reports it's much cooler there and there's a lot more snow where she is at tonight, and uh, yeah, winter is a good thing. So um, this here, though, is not this week in weather. It is the EdTech Situation Room. We are a podcast that takes a look at news headlines from across the technoverse and kind of shoots them through an educational prism to talk about how and why and if they might impact the classroom environment. You can get a copy of our show notes at our website, edtechsr.com. Uh, you can also... Uh, Download copies of the podcast, and we'll talk about it a little bit later at the end of the episode. So lots of interesting news this week. As always, we probably have way more links than we have time to talk about in our short hour together. But, Wes, where would you like to start on the podcast tonight? Well, let's see. Uh, quite a bit of interesting Google and Googleish news. Why don't we actually start with a little talking about the, um, the, the uh, creator update for... February and um, what the uh, wonderful CEO of YouTube, um, I don't know if I'm going to be able to say her name right. Um, and did I even move that into the right spot? Um, Su Susan, is it Jowicki? How do you say her name? Wajiki? Anyway, Susan W., she's the CEO of YouTube. Um, so this is under our, our headline, uh, Google and Googlish. 
No, it wasn't. You moved, yeah, that is Google, the Google, but we actually have a YouTube, uh, uh, category. So I think you put in the post from the YouTube creators blog on, on February 5th, uh, YouTube in 2019, looking back and looking forward. Um, there is an accompanying video by Susan Wojcicki. We'll find out how you, you can help us if you're a listener and, and I'm blowing her name, which I probably am not doing a great job. But anyway, uh, it talks about our priorities this year and it's a short video. And, um, first off, you know, the YouTube community and the creator community is, is incredibly important to the platform. Um, community standards are extremely important. There's a ton of, of outlier conspiracy, fake news, call it what you will, you know, content that has been amplified on social media. Of course, that's not just on YouTube. You know, Facebook has been, um, a big offender there, but the algorithms that YouTube has that have maximized attention and the, the eyeballs, you know, that are watching, um, have led to some perhaps unintended consequences and those kinds of things have being ad- been, ad- are being addressed. And so the first thing I want to say about this is, um, cu- kudos to, to them, uh, for really addressing these kinds of issues head on. Um, the ways in which they are addressing community standards and, you know, for instance, pranks. I think that might have been something we mentioned last week in the show that they are, you know, trying to not encourage dangerous and harmful pranks and, and those kinds of things. Um, there was an acknowledgement in this of, uh, what the most disliked video, which was, I think, the, the, the retrospective that they had last year that there's been a lot of backlash from the creator community. So I think there's some lessons to learn here from uh, educational technology and school perspective. Um, number one, let's recognize how huge YouTube is in the learning of probably just about every teenager who has access to the internet today, which is, which is almost all of them. And number two, um, let's recognize how important it is to be responsive to your community and to address these kinds of issues, right? YouTube's not throwing their hands up. Of course they're not because they're going to monetize this, you know, but, but saying this is intractable, this is impossible, you know, for us to, to be able to address. And so, um, I think, you know, I, I respect the transparency that they, they have in talking about these kind of issues. And I think these are actually great things to talk to students about, right? Because, you know, trolling and, and terrible comments, um, also very much outlier content and the ways in which, you know, folks can be radicalized in their, um, in their perceptions of the world and their opinions and things like that. These are, these are important things to, to grapple with. So I thought that was, uh, a significant, um, you know, video, and, and I think you might have put the creator's blog post in there. So what, what are, are your thoughts, Dr. Neifer? Uh, well, first, a shout-out to Peggy George, who's in our chat room tonight, that points out that it's Susan, I'm probably going to screw up even though I have the phonetics going uh, uh, in front of me, Buhikiki, uh, along those lines, and uh, Peggy's probably laughing at me just right now. But Vuchiski, Vuchiski, Chiski is the name. Chis was the, the thing I couldn't uh, <laughs> roll off my tongue, and I I have a, a bit of a, a, a Central and Eastern Europe background too. But um, the reason why I like that creator's blog piece, and the reason why I, I, I like the seeing that messaging, is that I, I I've really had a lot of soul searching over YouTube the last uh, two or three years, and part of it is because I still maintain. And, and I get why there are there are logistical issues in this. I really am firmly against blocking school districts, and I remain against it. I think it is one of the best uh, learning tools that's ever been created by humans. It is an extraordinary library, and if you take out even the billions of videos that are, 
you know, really not worth anything and are just, you know, my YouTube channel alone contains probably a half dozen random experiments that, that really aren't of any real value. You take all those videos out, you still be left with hundreds of millions of amazing videos that uh, are, are important for history and culture and teaching and learning and all sorts of things that it's impossible uh, to really wrap our brains around. But uh, the thing that I think is also important, too, is that at some point there has to be a way that YouTube and YouTube-like services exist, understanding that they're within a marketplace, understanding that the creators are creating for more than just educational purposes. They're probably also in it for money and compensation. Um, I know a lot of, of uh, people under the age of 25. I, I have experience uh, having an exchange student in my house last year who was watching YouTube as his primary source of media consumption, that this is a phenomenon that's not going to go away. At the same time, you know, I think it's worthwhile questioning, you know, uh, it, should we be having conversations about who our students are watching? Um, uh, YouTube, in my mind, does not replace a teacher. In fact, I think it's, it's disingenuous to ever suggest that, in that if that were true, we could simply hand hand infants an iPad with the YouTube app on it, say good luck, and pick them up 18 years later ready for the world, right? It's so much more complex than that. And, and Dr. Neifer, as a distance learning guru, you're not advocating a strictly video-based online education. Amazing. Absol yeah, absolutely. And in fact, I, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because something we've learned very much so uh, in our experiences at the Montana Digital Academy is that you know, there is a perception that you can just learn by video, right? But uh, I, I like to describe it this way. Uh, imagine for a moment you are the most engaging lecturer on earth. And I've really experienced as a student engaging lectures in my 20-some years in formal education. And I got to tell you, imagine for a moment a huge auditorium with 500 students and the most amazing lecture ever in the central front room. And everyone in the room has a stop button and see how many times a video is stopped, uh, ignored completely, temporarily stopped. You know, there's just no comparison between those two pieces. And in fact, great e-learning, as research tells us now, and people with experience in the genre, is a mix between interaction, text, uh, video, all of the above, to kind of weave together a great learning experience. And so, despite all of that, I, I just, I can't believe how amazing YouTube is as a distribution platform for, for a worldwide audience. And really, in my mind, it's true. You could literally just have the YouTube app uh, on a television and be endlessly entertained, um, maybe not with as much fictional programming, um, although YouTube has been trying that as of late. But, you know, uh, there's enough uh, uh, nonfiction and, and user-generated content that it, it could really last a lifetime of learning well, if I could uh, segue to one other article, and then we'll defer to your choice. Um, at the end of our Google section, I put in a PC Magazine article from January 29th that links nicely with this called How Google's Jigsaw is Trying to Detoxify the Internet. This is an absolutely fantastic read. And in fact, I would even say anyone involved in social media and especially commenting We've talked about this on the show before, you know, Jason, I know you've lamented, you know, even in local politics and local news, how incredibly vitriolic and troll-like the comment section in the local paper can be to the point where, you know, many have just given up. This is a great article about um, Alphabet is, you know, Google's parent company, um, how they've got uh, an API called the Perspective and Different 
projects. And this really gives us a window into how AI or artificial intelligence and machine learning today is augmenting human cognitive capabilities with superpowers. And so they've got a lot of projects. Um, the statistics in here about the New York Times receiving, I think they said something like 15 to 18,000 comments a day. And until not that long ago, they were using a human team to look at each and every one of those comments. They have a fantastic metaphor here called the haystack metaphor. And that is, you know, if you've got, let's say 18,000 comments, it's this massive, you know, virtual haystack. How helpful to have an algorithm that can help you identify things that may, may be toxic, may need a second look. You're not just having to, to subject humans to all of that. And this article very, you know, convincingly, I think, makes the case that this AI world, especially when it re regards comment moderation and addressing community standards, it's not a let's turn it over to the machines and humans are hands off. It's very much AI and machine learning is giving us as humans superpowers to be able to more quickly and readily identify potentially problematic content, but then make the call. And the algorithms are getting better and they're getting smarter, but we have a long way to go. Um, actually, this article inspired me to finally join Reddit. And I don't know how many of our listeners are Reddit users. I know you are, Jason. My son loves Reddit. And there's a Reddit group called, I think it's called Change My Mind. And so it's talking about how, how rare true debate can be online and that this algorithm, this, this whole initiative by Google and by others, um, the Mozilla Foundation's been involved. And in, in fact, I think one of their projects just got, you know, bought by Vox or somebody, but this is super important stuff, right? We need to be able to have discourse and intelligent dialogue using these digital tools that connect us. And because stuff has gone so mainstream and outlier and extremist voices have been, I think, empowered and not just empowered, amplified uh, beyond what is healthy for us as a society. We really need these tools that are going to that are going to help us. So are, have you have you seen this happen in, in any, any positive signs, I guess, in your local news? And because I know that's something that you're passionate about and you've commented on before. Well, other than turning it off, right, that's really been the biggest uh, movement here in Montana. Um, my wife and I actually started a, um, a campaign in, in our local city of Missoula, Montana, to try to get the local paper to turn off comments. And, and my wife actually called the editor and uh, found out they were actually at the, uh, about to announce they were going to turn commenting off. And I did have to deal with some debate um, on Facebook amongst friends and, and colleagues about whether or not they had First, uh, First Amendment implications and my argument. Uh, to there it always has been that you know it's been never easier uh, uh, than now, right? To to express your opinion, if you want to create a news talk show uh, on YouTube that broadcasts live every night, you can do that with a laptop and and, and an internet connection, right? If you want to be two guys in, in two states that ramble on about technology once a week and send it out to a worldwide audience, we can assure you it didn't take a ton of skill to start up this podcast, right? And and I think there's a real power there for that, but. I do think at the same time, like, I have once in a while seen interesting discourse go on. And in fact, you mentioned Reddit. Reddit's something I've reintroduced myself to. Uh, I had an account there that was 12 years old that I recently got back into, and I love it. It's really great. And I'm not, I'm not talking about the, I'm not on the Donald Trump message boards or the politics message boards or the Nancy Pelosi message boards or any of the places where, you know, political discourse is likely to blow up into something ill productive. But when it comes to discussing, Chrome OS or um, Pixel Books or 
Android phones or my obsession about notebooks and fountain pens and pens in general, like things that I'm really passionate about, finding that community has been very important to me, actually. And I feel, you know, affirmed by that, which is what the power of the internet is supposed to be in the first place. And I think you're starting to notice a trend in the way we discuss these issues on the Edex Situation Room, that we got to find a way to find a balance for these things somewhere, right? It's not an option for us to stuff the internet back in Pandora's box. It's also not an option for us to stuff social networking into Pandora's box again. These things are out in the open. So finding a way for us to come up with a meaningful uh, a way to engage with these technologies and to uh, encourage our students and uh, one another to have civil discourse on them and to add technology to beat back the problems with technology. I think that's something that is, is truly important and something we need. You are being partially cat muted. And for those of you that are listening and not watching the large feline that has joined Jason's uh, image has, has also inserted itself somehow on his microphone. So, yeah. Am there I better you now? You yeah, are okay. bare now. The, the cat mute is off. Right. So, uh, so that's something to keep in mind. And, you know, I, I have been very encouraged. I've seen a lot of reference towards teaching about fake news in classrooms. I know social studies teachers, my, my sisters and brothers in the social studies teaching field have taken on these um, particular um, uh, issues with fervor in their classroom. I am excited about that, that they are uh, attacking and, and helping kids develop skills. Um, I believe in the past I've ranted a little bit about one of the most detrimental things about No Child Left Behind is how social studies was decimated in K-12 education. Uh, dramatically less hours by many factors uh, less uh, uh, spent on social studies, which has led to, in my mind, students being ill-informed and ill-prepared and ill-equipped to be in a media-rich world. So great, let's push those discussions back into the classroom. Awesome. All right, where to next, sir? We we do we do again have a bit of a queue of of uh, articles. So we do we do. Well, there's a topic that might send us down a rabbit hole. Another topic that might send us down a rabbit hole, but it's very exciting breaking news uh, that uh, I learned about earlier this week. Hold on, I need to deal with this feline here. Um, we have one pet remaining in our house, and now that she's noticed that she is all alone, she... It's ready to join the dialogue. Yeah, she wants to be uh, paid attention to. So, um, I believe this was originally broken by... I think it was The Verge, actually, but uh, Spotify has announced that it has purchased Gimlet Media for 200... I think the, ter the amount was $260 million dollars. And a little background, if you don't know about Gimlet Media, uh, Gimlet Media was started by Alex Bloomberg of This American Life and Planet Money fame, and his goal was to start a narrative podcast network. So imagine for a moment the uh, episodic nature of podcasts, not unlike the one you're listening to now, but with more of a focus on what public radio does with narrative shows. So think This American Life or Planet Money or... Uh, even some of the fictional things that uh, uh, Select Shorts is a good example of, of another great NPR show, but trying to merge those two things together. And Alex Bloomberg released a podcast called Startup that was about him starting up this co this company. It was wildly popular. Uh, I loved it. The first season was nothing short of amazing and included terrible pitches by Mr. Bloomberg uh, to try to get uh, venture capital funding for his venture um, uh, it included uh, some stressful times when it appeared that, uh, you know, 
he wouldn't be able to get enough money to live and survive, which is not an uncommon startup phenomenon. And then eventually he, he, he picked up a co-founder. Uh, they started up a company. They have a dozen or so podcasts, including a couple that they've uh, kind of moved on and retired on. And they're, you know, uh, in, in multi-millions of dollars a year of ad revenue and have dozens and dozens of employees. Well, it was rumored uh, over the weekend that they were in advance talk with Spotify to pick up um, uh, Spotify to buy the company. And then it was announced uh, yesterday that, uh, indeed, Spotify has purchased not only uh, Gimlet Media, this podcast company, but also another company I'm a little less aware of. And now I can't see what the name is. It is something that seemed really simple and I forgot what it was. Uh, but there's a second company that, that does podcasting services. Now, what has happened in the last 72 hours with this news is that a lot of other podcasters are talking about it. And I didn't throw the link in there, although I, I can. This week's This Week in Tech on the Twit Network talked about this for about 15 minutes. And the number they kept citing, which I think has been in a couple of the articles, podcasting is, is only, and I'm going to use that term for a second, only a $700 million business. There's Anchor. Only, Anchor is, Anchor is the about. tool, right? And, and they do audience um, uh, tracking services. They have an app that you can uh, create call-in it's shows huge. on. It's the best tool I recommend for teachers and students, by the way, to make your own podcast right now is Anchor. So that's there a huge go. acquisition. Well, and, um, you know, that's a, a, a key piece here, right, that, that the industry, I think, has, has gained a lot of notoriety by just this purchase because now, um, you know, uh, it, it, it's, it's a viable business to start up a good podcast company and then sell it uh, to someone else with the cognizance and the technical ability there. So um, uh, this inspires a ton of questions for me. For example, I like about four shows at any given time from the Gimlet. I'm a very big podcast listener, less so in the last six months or so, but I've re-engaged in that uh, media environment in the last 30 days or so. Uh, there are several shows like Gimlet I like. I would be highly disappointed if they weren't available on my personally preferred podcast aggregator, which is Pocket Casts, uh, a an app owned by a conglomeration of public radio uh, organizations. But it's starting to seem that the big dogs in media are picking up on and staking claims in the broader podcast industry. So I guess I'd start up with first, uh, Wes, are you a, are you a Gimlet listener at all? I am some. Um, but as I mentioned on the show, the smart assistant, specifically the Google Home, has become transformative for me in terms of increasing the amount of podcasting content that I'm listening to. And so uh, I definitely love, you know, recommendations. And I think is Gimlet, uh, let's see, uh, I'm going to have to actually go into my subscriptions. That, this is one thing, by the way, that you don't get with your smart assistant is, is being able to, you know, see the breakdown of, of all the podcasts. So, uh, yeah, today explained is Vox. I'm trying to think of which, which Gimlet, um, Ezra Klein, that's Vox also. So I think there is a Gimlet podcast on here somewhere amidst the, like, 120 subscriptions. So, but no, yep. so, but I, it, it's not coming to me right away. And, you know, the interesting thing for me about this, you know, uh, uh, beyond the fact that, that I, you know, we have our own little quarter of the podcasting world in which we engage in, um, it's only a $700 million business, even though it's producing thousands and hours a day of content. 
Reply, but, reply all. That's yeah. where I give it also on my list as well. In yeah. fact, some of the the best podcasting I've heard about internet culture related issues has been on Reply All, and I believe that Alex poached those two from WBOR in Boston. The the gentleman that posts that podcast, they used to host, I think, the TDLR podcast, maybe. But you know, the 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 notion here that it's it's a viable business, I think, is is pretty important. Um, so I. What that inspires me to take a look at, then, is there was another great article that I had come across I was reminded of this week, um, 13 Predictions for Podcasting in 2019. This is a December, I think, 18, 19th article um, from a guy named Steve Pratt, and it's from Pacific Content, uh, which is, uh, I believe, uh, engaged in this content advertising business. But I thought it would be quickly, you know interesting to go over this, especially in the light of the fact that Wes and I both make a podcast and we listen to podcasts to see if any of these things are familiar or interesting uh, pieces to me. So uh, first and foremost, prediction number one, uh, this has been predicted for literally a dozen years. Podcasting goes mainstream. Um, I would say that it's as mainstream as it's probably going to get until the model changes after uh, the big podcast of, of, of a couple of years ago, Serial is the one I'm thinking of. Serial was a wildly popular podcast. It brought at least at least six-digit numbers of, of, of people that weren't really into podcasts listening into the genre. But I don't know if 2019, even with the Gimlet purchased by Spotify, whether the industry changes substantially or not. Where are you at? Where are you on that one? I would aspirationally hope that's going to happen, but I don't. I think we're just going to continue to have some incremental rather than transformative leaps into that world. I will say that as smart assistants and just this whole, you know, Star Trek computer, you know, play play for me, so and so. As we move more into that world, and we have that in our car, we have that in our living room, um, and. Because what you're describing with Serial is like a blockbuster podcast, right? This this really popular thing that lots of people hear about and subscribe to. What I find, I think, to be most engaging is really the niche, long-tail podcast. You know, being able to connect to other educators has been transformative for me since, whatever, 2005-ish, uh, mid-2000s. So I think we're going to, you know, continue to see both phenomena occur, but I don't think we're going to see this tremendous leap into mainstream and hey every other person you know is listening to a podcast i don't think that's going to happen really soon right uh, second and i think there's interesting fodder here uh, competition heats up for apple what they're talking about is the apple podcast directory and also the apple podcast app and the apple podcast app if i remember correctly is still the preferred client for most podcast listeners partly because i think unless you are a super podcast listener kind of like Wes uh, and myself, uh, you probably haven't moved beyond that particular app as of yet. And they mentioned two particular uh, uh, potential um, uh, uh, competitors, Pandora being one of them, and they also uh, mentioned Spotify. Um, Pandora, which was purchased by Sirius last year, Sirius FM uh, or Sirius XM Radio for Sirius or uh, Pandora. Um, I, I, I should see uh, uh, Sirius maybe getting more into the broadcasting of podcasting. They do have several business channels and like long-form nonfiction channels that, that a lot of the, the more formal podcast, uh, narrative podcast productions would probably fit in well with that. Um, Spotify is a terrible podcasting app. Uh, it's hard to find podcasts on Spotify. I would love to maybe use less apps, right? Like if I can 
you know, have one app be a multitasker on my phone. That's better for everyone involved. But uh, my preferred uh, a podcast app is Pocket Cast. It has been for probably a half dozen years or so. And uh, yeah, and it's 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 easy to use. It's being developed. It was purchased by a conglomerate of public radio uh, uh, producer. Oh, groups. it's not it's not owned by that Australian originator who created no. it now. No, Pocket Cast is now owned Shifted by... Shifted Jelly, I think it was yeah, called. Yeah, well, and I think they they were purchased whole, including the, the Shift Jelly folks uh, are now working for the conglomeration. But it's wow, like, I didn't know that. Uh, NPR, uh, WBEZ Chicago, I think, was in on it. Um, uh, uh, PRI, Public Radio International, was also part of the group. Um, but, you know, the bottom line is, is that... that Apple probably needs some competition, especially if people are going to have a better podcasting experience. So you're on Pocket Cast, Wes? I am. Uh, and one of the things that I'll observe, you know, I don't need Spotify at this. Well, I'm, I just use the Google Assistant directly to listen to most of my podcasts. I love how and, and Google Assistant is, is not great at this, but like I'll listen to This Week in Tech, you know, quite a bit. And these are long shows, right? They're an hour and a half sometime. I mean, their end of year show is like three hours or something. So being able to pick up on, you know, upstairs and downstairs and, and, and in the car uh, is a really useful thing. It's not quite there yet. Um, perhaps I, I don't, I, I, have you sprung for a Google home hub or any of the, the smart assistants with a screen yet, Jason at home? Yeah, I haven't either. So it'll be interesting when we have those and just, just as this continues to mature, cause I still, you know, in terms of discovery and remembering things and, and whatever, it's, it's kind of like where we're in this Harry Potter world, right? Where you need to memorize the spell and know, you know, the name of the podcast and get it exactly right. And so it's going to be interesting to see how that, how that matures and grows. I think though, for me, and this is true of our show right now, right? Like we're, we're not making any money doing this. You know, this, this is, this, we, we just kind of love doing it. Um, but to segue back to, to our original article, we were talking about YouTube and the creator community and how important that's been to the growth and the, the virality and just the, the mainstream nature of, of YouTube with the, cre the creatives. It'll be interesting how, you know, micropayments and we've seen, um, oh, what's it called? Uh, Patreon, you know, really grow. And so some different people being able to to make their living uh, doing podcasts. I don't I don't know how much that's going. I think that's probably going to have a significant role in the in the growth of podcasting. And and so anyway, you've got this mainstream sort of big splash podcast and people are pushing and and hopeful that that's going to bring more people into the platform. But frankly, the thing that interests and and energizes me the most, although I did mention the Twit podcast and, and liking those. Um, but it has been a lot of just, you know, smaller podcasts being created by, you know, educators and, and others that probably have a, a relatively small audience. But yet I find that very engaging and interesting. So it'll be I'm, I'm excited to see all of this renewal. Right. We've mentioned before, I think we're in a, a renaissance for podcasting. Again, Anchor, that was one of the companies you mentioned, um, just had a teacher, I think, two weeks ago, asked me, hey, I want to do some podcasting with my students. You know, what do you recommend? And and shared with, with that with her. She just told me this week, actually, that she didn't have there were there were too many kids to have a, a big class discussion. So she broke them up. One of them went into the hallway um, and they were as a group having uh, a discussion that they used the Anchor app to be able to record and, and podcast and she was going to be listening to that later it's a phenomenal um uh, modality uh for recording and and sharing and the fact that there are so few constraints on it is uh is a wonderful thing so right. well it's something i don't really understand is why more podcasts aren't being used in the 
classroom. And, and I'm talking about from a content standpoint, right? Right. Um, I, I obviously it would be an advocate for students making podcasts. And in fact, that's something I experimented with before I left the classroom in 2010. Um, and there have been a number of, of great classroom podcasts uh, in, in the last 15 years since podcasting started. But there's a shocking amount of excellent content that is occurring across genres of, of subjects, right? The, the, and the ones I can think of just for my subject area. And I, my social studies teacher by training, but... There are dozens of great history podcasts. There's a number of wonderful government and um, economics podcasts that I think would be really wonderful in, in the classroom environment. And, uh, you know, I get it takes some commitment to listen to the 20, 30, 40 minutes of audio and come up with materials for it to utilize it. But I think that, uh, you know, and I, I want to be clear, like in the same way that I, I think that it's it's a should be a rare strategy to turn on. Um, you know, a, a, a video or a movie for two or three straight days in a classroom. That's not a very engaging exercise short of some interpretation. I would also say that playing a podcast for two or three straight class periods is not particularly engaging either. But when it's on the go, like it can be, and there are great small short form podcasts that are four, five, seven, 12, 14 minutes that could be incredibly good fodder for discussion in the next day in the classroom or in somewhat of a flipped classroom environment, I think that could be really powerful to engage in discussion. And I've seen a lot of good uh, uh, classroom podcasts being made. I haven't at least ran into a lot of teachers as of yet that are using that content for good inside the classroom. It occurs to me that perhaps the reason we don't have that explosion yet, maybe this will be coming with AI and with uh, voice recognition, is we don't have a Google for podcasting, right? The right. way in which Google is able to organize textual content and, and meta-tagged information and, and continues to be, I think, the world's you know best uh, search engine for that. We don't have that kind of a smart search engine aggregating those pieces. And so that may be an opportunity that Google or other search engine companies can seize a hold of in terms of uh, making that kind of content readily indexable and, and crowdsourced in terms of, you know, vote ups and, and, you know, having an algorithm basically that's going to really help you, you know, again, have superpowers, kind of like I was talking about with uh, uh, the perspective AI or whatever that project was, Jigsaw, you know, gi giving you the ability to, to sort through a vast trove of content that you'd never have time to go through yourself, but you're able to use these tools and be able to find, you know, amazing, engaging things. Um, and Peggy also put into the, into the show notes, or not the show notes, the chat, you know, it's just, you know, students definitely prefer video over, over podcasts. And my, my comeback to that is uh, there's thousands of neurons that connect our eyes to our brain and just hundreds that connect our ears to our brain. So I'm told I haven't done that uh, operation myself. But, you know, we're really all visual learners if our eyes are working. So um, the good news is there's all kinds of ways in which engaging audio is being put to, you know, to a sketch note or, you know, to some kind of, of narrated slideshow. And, and there's ways to be able to do that. So, again, my desire for that would be to encourage folks to be content creators and content producers. And hopefully there'll be tools in addition to Anchor that are going to fuel the frictionless creation and sharing of, of podcast media, uh, which might blur the lines and not just be a strict audio podcast, you know, but may include sketch notes or it may include, you know, uh, different kinds of visuals that are going to be related, synchronized visuals. Absolutely. 
Um, I would encourage you, the article's long, if you're interested in this topic, and I, I think that, that uh, it, to me, it's we're just on the verge over and over and over again of something um, that could be really amazing here from a media standpoint. Check out that article, which will be in our show notes at edtechsr.com. Awesome. I'll do a quick one. This is a Gizmodo article. Uh, Peggy mentioned this one in the chat. Uh, it's from February 4th. Crypto Exchange says it can't repay $190 million to clients after founder dies with the only password. And actually, this is interesting from a headline standpoint, right? Because you basically got the whole article summary in that headline. Um, but yes, the founder of this cryptocurrency, which I've never heard of before, Quadriga CX, um, the 30-year-old founder, uh, Gerald Cotton, was the only person who had the passwords. And so uh, they had something called funds in cold storage and then funds that were in a hot wallet used for transfer. And there were roughly 26,500 Bitcoins, which is 92 million US dollars, and then all these other different kinds of coins. I mean, just as a little analysis into where currency is today, this is a phenomenal article. <clears throat> a number of years ago, probably in 2010, um, I had a chance to visit a museum in China that was in Shanghai that was, it, it's a, it has this incredible currency, um, you know, section and the, the things that were used for currency. Uh, and of course, you know, Chinese history just blows your mind as a North American for how little, you know, our, our comparative history is. But currency itself is fascinating. What is happening today with currency is, you know, uh, is uh, very opaque and almost not understandable other than being a horse race and a real gamble, I think, to a lot of people. Um, but I think this uh, speaks to the importance of the password. So, Jason, is there anyone in your organization that if uh, they were, were hit by a bus or something else unfortunate happened to them, you, you all might be up a creek because they have the only password? Uh, it's funny you should mention that. We actually refer to it exactly as that, the hit by a bus problem, right? And uh, we, um, we're a small organization. We're what we like to, like to call administratively thin, which means we just have a handful of people that um, run most of the systems there. And we actually work on that quite aggressively to have uh, continuity service plans in case something bad should happen um, to someone in the organization. And so we have master passwords and we have password files that are under a literal lock and key and um, things that are related to that. Uh, but, I mean, I think that's, uh, you know, that's it's, it's what disappointed me about the government's original uh, kind of banning of cryptocurrency. I think cryptocurrency is going to be a reality whether we like it or not, right? So all the talk of making it illegal and uh, trying to find ways to um, kind of over-regulate until they can wrap their brains around it. Um, I, I think there's going to be cryptocurrency whether we want cryptocurrency or not. So we should be working together to understand it and to develop it in a way so $190 million doesn't disappear uh, with the swift uh, 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 running of a bus. So, yeah, I think that's something that is a pretty important piece. The cat is ready to be back in the show. It's an attention economy, folks, and cats are not to be left out. Where to next? Let's see. Let's do a couple of the security articles here while we're on the security topic. Uh, CNET uh, reported on January 27th that the Japanese government is planning on, well, uh, change the law to allow them to utilize government workers to hack into uh, insecure uh, household IoT devices to warn users uh, either, well, either to patch uh, uh, the software for them 
or to warn end users that this was happening. And this is being used under the security protocols put in place for the 2020 Tokyo Olympics. Uh, Japan, in, in, by many reports, is woefully under uh, prepared for that particular event. They don't have enough hotel rooms. Uh, I, I heard the other day, I believe it was on NPR, they are desperately attempting to get infrastructure in place, even though in many ways Japan would be, or Tokyo would be more prepared for large numbers of people in, in, in small confined spaces than you would assume many other countries um, on, on uh, cities and countries on earth to be so. Um, but there are, they feel like it's such a security problem that so many people have poorly secured Internet of Things devices in their home, that they will utilize government services to hack into people's light bulbs um, and either update the firmware for them or let them know that their house is uh, uh, at risk of being hacked by hackers. So, Wes, would you like me to hack into your home tonight? No, I think I'm good for that. But I am going to say, because my initial one was like, oh, my gosh, this is horrible. I'm going to say kudos to the Japanese government for taking this issue seriously because I think we are freaking asleep at the wheel about this right now. We've got all kinds of companies making all kinds of Internet-connected devices. If we'd like to get into some of the terms we've talked about on past shows, uh, recall the Mirai botnet. The Mirai botnet was created by a couple young kids in Alaska who were trying to have a Minecraft hosting company, and they wanted a way to bring down their opponents or their, their competitors. And what they ended up doing was creating this incredibly powerful tool that would would harness the uh, capabilities of IoT devices like security cameras and other things in your house. In fact, they got so scared that they decided to throw it out into the community so that hopefully they wouldn't be blamed. And then at the time, that was utilized for the largest denial of service attack that we've seen on the Internet so far. And it crippled, I think, Brian Krebs, you know, um, you know, website. And it was just it's crazy. So I'm, I think this sounds on its face like, what the heck? You know, the government's going to try to hack. But it also, I think, perhaps shows leadership on the part of the Japanese uh, government taking this seriously and recognizing that this is a time bomb because if we let all of these devices... Because remember, a denial of service attack is when lots and lots of devices ping you or, or send packet requests to a particular IP address and then that overwhelms that server and, and takes that you know network offline effectively. So kudos to Japan. Am I off base with that? No, I think you're right. And um, even if the, the strategy is um, uh, even if the strategy is maybe too far from, from their action, the fact that they're taking seriously would put it ahead, I think, of, of where the United States is on this right now. And I get where, you know, the, well, I mean, I, I just looked, for example, my wife is, is not in, 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 at home tonight. She is traveling. So she has a device or two with her. There are still 17 devices hooked up to my internet, active devices hooked up to my internet right now. And it includes uh, a couple of light bulbs, a couple of, of, of home assistants, uh, three or four smart uh, outlets. Um, I have a couple of uh, monitoring outlets that are monitoring the amount of currents going through things so I can track. Uh, use over time. I purchased a um, a smart power strip last week that can turn off individual items. And so in my uh, office in the basement of my home, which is where I have the big monitors and the printer and all the desktop equipment, that turns off automatically at every night because um, I know that 
if I, even if I'm sitting there, if the monitor turns off or the printer turns off, it's not likely to harm me. But I press it back on. But I've already noticed in in 45 days that saved me um, uh, quite a bit of power each month. But it's still something that is a hackable device in my home. And um, you know, I, if if I uh, my wife and I live, we're we're adults, no kids, and we have two dozen devices in our home. I'm guessing we can't be alone. As a sign of the times, a few years ago, um, you know, presenting it at uh, conferences, that was a favorite question of mine, was to ask people to guesstimate how many devices in their home today connected connects to the Internet, right? And so at that point, you're counting computers, you're thinking Apple TV, Roku, you know, those kind of things. But we're going to rapidly be in a place where we almost can't count those the numbers of devices. Maybe, right? I mean, not everybody's going to jump on the, the smart home bandwagon and and we haven't gone whole whole hog on that, but it it definitely is something that we need to be talking about. And again, whose responsibility is that to talk about security and to also educate the masses? Right? I think we've considered school this place where you know we're going to get this education into into kids, and then college, and then you're out in the world. Boy, with things like this, it is absolutely important to educate everyone. Right? Grandma, grandpa. Uh, everyone who's a consumer who's buying things, you know, needs to be aware of of how things need to be updatable. You need to have an eye to security, and um, all of us in our families and our lives need those people we can call on to help us with these sorts of things. And by the way, we need some regulation, right? Ooh, did I say that? Uh, we are not. I mean, I don't think it's going to be wonderful to just leave everything to the market to regulate itself when it comes to some of these kinds of things. Uh, we're seeing that with Facebook. And of course, what we fear is an overregulation and, and that we're going to have too much of a response. And, you know, hopefully the internet doesn't get broken as a result. But in the case of IOT, I mean, consumer protection, right? Ralph Nader, think about that. We've, we've had a long history in, in certainly the United States of recognizing why we need to have, you know, some, some government uh, regulation and also some non-governmental groups that are going to serve as checks on that, right? That's one of the reasons we need a free press. We need journalists to be able to monetize their living and, and make their way because, you know, we need people, you know, checking up on these companies and folks who understandably are wanting to make a buck. Uh, but if you're making the buck and you're putting, you know, thousands or millions of devices, not just in the marketplace, but literally on the internet, you know, Mirai Botnet times a thousand. I mean, what? How, it's it's possible. So, absolutely. Yep. Okay, where to next, sir? Uh, let's see. Um, let's talk a little bit about uh, the Google stuff. Uh, I'll, I'll toss this one to you. This is nine to five Google. I'd found this on another site, but didn't put the article in because it's the same issue. Google's password checkup Chrome extension warns of breached third party logins. I'll just mention that. Something I enjoy mentioning in digital citizenship context is this website, Have I Been Pawned, which allows you to put your email address in and be able to, um, you know, see how many hacks your email has been in and possibly your password compromised. And, you know, generally that's a get your attention sort of thing. Um, the article which I had read on this topic uh, importantly said that Google had been working, of course, with security folks to figure out how to not pass this data, you know, openly. And so there's actually a secured hash that is being, you know, transferred back and forth and it is not, um, you know, openly sharing your password. So is this something you've installed, Jason? And, and are you putting it on a list of, uh, of things that everybody should be taking a look at or is it, is it that good? 
I, I, I like it so far, and, and to give you a sense of what this is, it's a Chrome uh, browser extension, and, and to be honest, uh, you know, extensions make the Chrome browser, right? I like that it's fast, I like that it's um, secure, uh, some people disagree with me on that, but I like that, uh, uh, generally speaking, of a phenomenon, but what makes, uh, you know, Chrome, for me, an advanced browser, and since I am on a Chromebook now 95% of the time, um, I need to you know, install extensions to add some... Uh, features uh, to my tool set in a browser. But essentially what the, the extension does is that it checks of save usernames and passwords. And not everyone agrees it's a good idea to save your usernames and passwords in the Chrome browser. I feel secure in that based on improvements made in the last 24 months by Google inside the Chrome browser itself. But it essentially checks when you log into a website, it checks to see if either the username um, or the password has been uh, in a compromised set, um, and it apparently is keeping an offline um, database, I'm sorry, not offline database, but its own database for this, so it's not going out to a live database, it's not pinging your username and password to somewhere else, it's doing it internally, and it tells you whether or not um, it believes that this username and password set has been compromised in it. And I think it's, it's, it's a pretty interesting phenomenon. You have to trust Google to do this, right? Like a, in, in, a, in a lot of ways, you have to trust Google in a lot of uh, things um, in, in light of you know, the kind of the cloud shenanigans in, in the last couple of years. But I think it's a good proactive step. And I will tell you that I feel very safe. Um, I'm now using uh, long, secure passwords in every website that matters to me. I do not repeat passwords across websites. I use LastPass as a password manager as well, which also looks for duplicate passwords amongst my group. And, um, and I use two-factor authentication, so when I log into important websites uh, for the first time on a browser, it asks me to confirm on an app on my phone whether or not it's me truly logging in. And I think this, amongst other tools, is a great idea for upping your security. I had an opportunity about a week ago to address our faculty, and I had about five minutes. Um, but it's uh, always a compliment to have a chance to, to be at these meetings. We only have a couple of them a year. And I usually actually end up talking about safety, security, uh, phishing. Um, there was actually a term pretexting, which I hadn't heard before. That's when somebody is, you know, impersonating somebody and trying to basically, you know, convince you that uh, they're, they're, they are who they purport to be so they can, you know, get your password or, or get you to log in or, or do something. And so one of the big, you know, you're going to move my cheese that much recommendations that I gave to our faculty was not just to have the course multi-factor turned on everywhere. They've got to turn it on for their, you know, school Gmail accounts because we've been enforcing that for over a year, uh, not for students, just for faculty staff, saying that they need to turn that on everywhere and saying they need to use a password manager, but saying on every website, you need to use a different password, preferably a very long and complex one. And so this would definitely help that because it would just flag and say, hey, you know, this, you, well, that it's not only that you've used it somewhere else, but you have, this has been a compromised password. So I just installed it and appreciate the shout out. Where next? Great. Uh, let's see here. I've lost our link window filling with other words. Um, oh, let me talk about a nerdy thing. Um, so I, 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 risk being mocked by Wes because I know this has been a feature on uh, Mac laptops and iOS devices for a couple of years now, but um, Google announced in 2018 that they were going to be uh, releasing uh, instant tethering. So if you have a Chromebook Pixel, or I'm sorry, Chrome Pixel Book 
and a Chrome Pixel phone, it can instantly, with one click of a button, utilize the inner the, the Chromebook can utilize the internet connection of a phone, so you don't have to you know start up a hotspot or anything. It can just use it when it's right next to each other. Um, that's a great feature, but I also don't use a a Pixel uh, phone. I utilize a, an LG phone, and Google is starting to roll this out not to my phone quite yet, but to other. Chromebooks, models, and Android phones. And I think it's amazing, especially in the era of unlimited data. Um, both Wes and I are T-Mobile users and uh, can use them for hotspots. And the fact that I can walk into Starbucks, utilize my own internet, which is completely secure, requires no VPN, open up my laptop, utilize uh, the, the internet access of my phone, shut my laptop down, no fuss, no muss, no clicking of buttons to get on there, I think is amazing. And good on Google for making uh, you know, those two devices work even closer together. Definitely. Hey, great tip from Peggy in our chat room. Uh, she said she learned today from Steve Dotto uh, from a webinar that you can create folders in the extension settings and then organize your extensions in Chrome. And that sounds kind of like a cool thing. That's I used, awesome. I I used the extension uh, extensity to basically keep a lot off. Um, so uh, here's a quick, uh, quick uh, geeky one. Um, hitting the books, Ray Kurzweil on humanity's nanobot-filled future. This was in Gadget on February the 3rd. And this is a summary of a conversation with Ray Kurzweil, who, if you do not know, is one of the advocates of this concept called the singularity, which is the point at which artificial intelligence will equal human intelligence. And then, you know, after that point, it, we're, we're off to the races, and who knows what is going to happen, especially... You know, if uh, they're able to replicate themselves and that's where, you know, visions of Schwarzenegger and, and uh, Predator and all kinds of things like that. And, and what, what does that Skynet come in? Um, the thing I would say about this is I've watched a number of Ray Kurzweil's videos on YouTube. Again, the, the recommendation engine of YouTube uh, can lead you down, you know, rabbit holes that, that may not be great for conspiracy theory and, and very um, outlier, outlier radical views, but it can also be absolutely phenomenal when you're passionate about something. Like, I actually am really into Freddie Mercury and Queen, and we've gone to see the Bohemian Rhapsody, you know, several times. And so, anyway, I've been, I've been watching that, and it recommends all this amazing, you know, different videos. If you get into watching Ray Kurzweil and AI, you know, there's phenomenal talks at Google and, you know, um, what is it called? It's like, well, there's Singularity University, right? I think that Kurzweil is co-founded with um, Diamantis, who's the guy that sponsors the X Prizes. And, and anyway, what this helps me think about is we are in an evolutionary process where this device right here, this smartphone, is becoming part of our brain. And because of human physiology, and I'm quoting Kurzweil here, our frontal you know, lobe of uh, uh, the, the neocortex in our brain can only be so big, right? Because otherwise we just wouldn't be able to be born. But when we're able to connect this neocortex to the cloud, we are able to dramatically improve our cognitive abilities and, and the, our ability to think and, and access information and just the power of our brains. And so I would just commend this as a mind-stretching article. And if you are not familiar with Kurzweil, I mean, certainly a lot of people don't agree with him, but he's had a lot of predictions, right? I think the guy's probably a millionaire. He's invented all kinds of things. He's really, really smart. And so his vision of how we are merging with our technology 
um, it informs me as I hear people really berating, you know, especially kids, but it's, it's adults as well and screens and what's happening. Um, I actually see this as part of an evolutionary process, uh, which is, you know, scary at, at one level, but according to Kurzweil, I mean, this is, this is part of our inevitable evolution as a species. So are you a Kurzweil fan? And when, and if so, do you think that the singularity will be something we'll see in our lifetimes or will we see it at all, Jason? I, I think we will see the cylindrical. I've read just a little bit, um, um, but it, I would have said no a couple of years ago, but to be honest, things are speeding up a little bit, like in a way that I wasn't expecting, to be honest. Okay. Well, we are nearing the top of the hour. We've probably got time for a couple more articles. Anything else that you would like to hit before we geek of the week it? Sure. Um, this morning's New York Times reported that in 2018, they reported $709 million in digital revenue. They had atten- or they were attempting to get to $800 million by the end of 2020, and it appears they're, they're, they're likely to hit that mark. What is interesting is that 3.3 million people pay for the company's digital products, which is a 20% or 27% jump from the year before. That also means that their total number of paid subscriptions for digital print reached 4.3 million, which is an all-time high of New York Times subscribers. And obviously, you know, the New York Times health does not signify the health of the entire media industry, but I, for one, am very encouraged that people are paying for good quality journalism. And it's something that I've committed to, particularly since the 2016 election, and I would encourage you, if you are like me and read a lot of journalistic content, um, and thrive on news and in good journalism. You know, pay for news magazines, pay for newspapers, uh, pay for content because we need people to fund the future of those that will keep everything else in check. And on that note, Jason, maybe we can take as a personal team challenge for 2019 doing some kind of experimentation with that, whether, you know, through Patreon or through there's different um, podcasting you know, ad models, which I don't love ads and podcasts. I actually love the fact that in on my smart assistant, I can say, hey, you know, forward, you know, two minutes or, or three minutes or however long the ads are. But, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a fan of playing with media. I'm a fan of, of iterating, using things as a sandbox. So I don't know, maybe that's something that we could think about. I want to make sure everyone remembers this is the EdTech Situation Room. You can find all the links to our shows on edtechsr.com slash links. We will be grabbing the individual article links for this show and putting those into the show notes. But you can certainly find this on your favorite smart assistant if you ask to play the latest episode of the EdTech Situation Room. Hopefully you can find it on your other favorite podcatcher software. We always wrap up with some Geeks of the Week, and I will go quickly here with one. Um, This is a video called What a Smell Looks Like, and it's from a channel that is called Alice Magician. The actual place is in uh, Burlington, Vermont. It's called Alice and the Magician. And shout out to Lucy, tech savvy girl on Twitter, who's the founder of the Create, Make and Learn conference. And it was at that conference that we went to their shop. And it's just an incredible idea where they're able to extract the essential smells of all kinds of things. And they actually work a lot with bars and drinks um, and and cooks and chefs and and things. But I mean, my favorite one was it's the smell 
of um, of a pine fire, you know, on a crisp winter morning, and 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 that whole you know, the smell of, of, of hearing or not hearing of smelling uh, a fire. Like how do you, they have it in a spray bottle. They have a clear plastic cup and they spray it and they put it under your nose. And then there you are, you're, you're experiencing this, but it's an amazing visualization. Oops. And that's from a, a PBS series. What a smell looks like a great curiosity link. If you want to share those kind of things with students and get them talking. How about you, Jason? What do you got for us this week? Uh, Based on podcasting information we talked about earlier, HotPod is an excellent email newsletter and website that talks about the podcast industry. It is obviously super inside baseball for, for podcast fans. But if you're interested in this medium, and obviously Wes and I are, and I know a lot of, of, of you know uh, normal adults, non-geeky adults that are super into podcasting, um, it's a great place to find news. And they're the ones that broke the story to me um, on the uh, then- likely and now confirmed pickup of Gimlet by Spotify. So Hot Pod is a great email newsletter website. Fantastic. Well, Jason, where can people find you? I hear that there is an event coming up soon in Seattle, which sadly I will not be attending, but I heard rumors that you'll be sharing some thoughts. Is that rumor valid? That is absolutely valid. Uh, the Northwest Council for Computer Education, February 2019 conference in fabulous Seattle, Washington. There are still registration spots open. Um, we have a wonderful lineup of speakers, including um, a, a time with me uh, on a number of new presentations that are put together by every year. NCC is where I uh, break my presentations. I do, do them there first. It's a, an agreement I have with them. That's the first time I offer those presentations at their conference. I'm also doing our annual look at interesting tools called 30 in 50 with Mike Agustinelli, um, uh, the NCC Tech Savvy Teacher in Residence. I am the Tech Savvy Administrator in Reverence for NCCE, and it's just a really great conference. Um, I would say that it's intimately sized um, in that it is not 20,000 people of, um, of, of ISTE. It's just 2,000 people in a great space uh, in downtown Seattle. So if you've never been, uh, Seattle's one hop from uh, 70 different cities across the United States, and uh, you can literally jump over on one airplane. Oh, your microphone just got you. The cat muted you. Yeah, the there cat you go. muted me there. <laughs> so um, uh, it's one hop from 70 cities in the United States, and you could stop by and, and not only experience downtown Seattle, which is just one of the best places on earth. You can meet wonderful people from uh, around the Pacific Northwest and across the United States interested in technology education. www.ncc.org. You can also follow uh, NCC on Twitter, NCC underscore EdTech. What about very, very good. I am W Fryer on Twitter, and my blog is speedofcreativity.org. And I will be this weekend getting back into uh, publishing my weekly video, which uh, I kind of I lapsed over the holidays and have to get back into that routine. And those are being published on the Twitter handle Videos by Wes, and I'm putting those out on playing playingwithmedia.com in my video library. So I always put those out for at least a week, but my last one's been up for about a month because I haven't put up another one. So anyway, a post last night I just did about uh, an ebook project, my favorite <clears throat> technology integration project of the year with one of our 12th grade teachers who's seniors make some amazing ebook picture books, actually in printed books, and then read those to their kids and the ways today or this year in which they also narrated those in their own voices and created some phenomenal artwork. So Hopefully, we have given you some food for thought. We appreciate you tuning in. We would love to hear from you. You can reach out to us on our Twitter handles. You can use the um, hashtag EdTechSR 
or reach out to us at the EdTechSR channel. And you can also comment on our blog and podcast uh, website, which is edtechsr.com. Until next time, we encourage you to stay savvy, stay safe, and if you're in Missoula, stay warm.